I said, empty your mind. Be formless, shapeless, like water. It's about how hard you hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. How much you can take and keep moving forward. Join movement expert Aaron Alexander as he dives into the minds of the foremost innovative healthcare thinkers and movement masters on their approach to optimal health and wellness. Align Podcast. A group pushes a biological necessity. And a biological necessity doesn't mean that you have to cut your breast or cut your bottom or stick this in or stick it out or do anything of that sort. That has nothing to do with biology. Biology is not as silly as many people are. You see, it's four and a half billion years old. So it has some experience and knows what's good for you. And biology, biologically, a posture is necessary in order to be able to move. Welcome back to the Line Podcast. My name is Aaron Alexander, and in today's beautiful episode, I had the privilege to have uh, Dr. Gabor Mate on the show. He has been highly influential in uh, forming my perspectives on this world and these thoughts rattling around my noggin. He's been someone that I have uh, looked up to in an intellectual type way, and I uh, hope you guys enjoy and appreciate his work. I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with it already. He is the writer of several books, uh, Scattered Minds, When the Body Says No, Hold On to Your Kids, In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts is his most recent one that he's released. And um, yeah, really, really tremendous fellow. He's got a really interesting story as well. He was actually born in Budapest, Hungary in 1944, uh, which effectively makes him a Jewish survivor of the Holocaust. During that time frame, he uh, had lost both of his maternal parents to that whole situation and um, yeah really really very interesting background that has such a strong impact on forming his perspectives on trauma and the process of unwinding that uh, really, really amazing, amazing life story uh, Dr. Dr. Mate has. In this conversation, we got into how our psychology affects our physical body, affects our biology, our posturing, the way that we move through the world, and potential impact on things like disease and addiction. And so among the other realms is the realm of hungry horse, in which the creatures are depicted as ones with small tiny mouths and very narrow necks so that the very little space for the food to go down and large empty bellies. So you got these small mouths, narrow gullets, and empty bellies. So they're always trying to feed themselves from the outside. It's an insatiable emptiness. And they're just haunting the world, trying to get fulfilled and filled. And that's the realm of addiction. Please and thank you. Check out the website, aligntherapy.com. That's A-L-I-G-N therapy.com. On there, you'll find hundreds of videos on self-care and functional movement. You will find the self-care kit, which is a hollow foam roller with uh, two different fascia release balls, heavy-duty elastic band, door anchor, all those things come inside, screw on lids so you can bring that thing on a road trip or wherever you got to go. Keep self-care tools around yourself on a regular basis. And if not, at least bring like a yoga mat or something that you can have this intentional practice of how you move in your body 100% of the time. There's no excuses in my opinion. Um, Thank you so much for leaving reviews on iTunes. Those are greatly appreciated. Make me smile every time and help the algorithms uh, know that people are listening and enjoying the show. And uh, that's just awesome. And 
everyone else. Thank you so much for utilizing the Amazon portal on the website. That is uh, phenomenally helpful. Um, just jump on to the blog or podcast page on the right-hand side bar. You'll see Aaron recommends Amazon Portal Dealio. Click that thing, bookmark that thing. Every time you utilize Amazon to buy any whatchamacallits that you do, um, I end up getting 7% towards the Line Podcast Foundation, which is just awesome. So thank you for that in advance. Um, I got a quote from reading this book by a woman called Valerie Hunt. Uh, I think Dr. Valerie Hunt, I'm pretty sure. And um, Infinite Mind, really, really nice book. And one of the quotes that I pulled out of here that I wanted to mention for y'all to ponder on is uh, psychology and psychiatry considered man a machine with bestial ideas, impulsive and unconscious drives that directed him. Reality composed of these truths is decidedly restricted reality that at most is only an approximation. Such science has told us about the lowest level of reality, but has provided us with little information about the higher realms. Arnold Toynbee's conclusion about 26 lost civilizations was that they all perished for the same reason. They overprotected the tenants which first made them powerful. They eventually cracked from the rigidity and sterility which accompanies a refusal to yield to an evolving worldview. I think that we can see that uh, rigidity or sterility uh, all throughout our culture. Anytime that we become stuck or consumed by one specific worldview and uh, neglect any other perspective, I think that's what's happening. Uh, I think it's very easy to see that, especially with focusing all your energy in just hard science and things that are measurable you know, in a beaker or have double-blind studies or what have you. I think there's a lot more to this world and this life and our psychology than what we can extract and deduce down. And uh, I think it would behoove us to start thinking outside the box. Um, I think that might suffice for, uh, for one introduction. Thank you so much again for the reviews, uh, utilizing the Amazon portal. That's awesome of you. And uh, here we go. Back to the show with Dr. Gabor Mate. Align Podcast. The relationship between our emotional selves is an ends up being expressed through our physical tissue. You know, so the way we hold our body and posturing and all that, our bodies can become prisons of sorts. You know, and, and, and emotional prisons. And if we're not able to move that, you know, our emotional expression through ourselves, you know, we don't have mediums for that. Then we end up kind of potentially manifesting things like you know disease. And so that's why I found your work to be amazing. I've highlighted like thousands of highlights, so many highlights with, with your books that it's like, it's a bit ridiculous. I could like write my own book based off of your highlights, but that's kind of that. It's great. It's yeah. great. I do that. <laughs> I do that. Books that really uh, inform me, I do the same thing. I highlight and I underline and I copy out and I asterisk and then I, yeah. you know, and I you know, yeah, so I understand. That's good. I'm glad. One of the things I, I know that you've mentioned before in previous previous interviews and such that the meaning of the in the realm of hungry ghosts. But I just think it's so poignant to to you know what I witness with you know with myself and and with like modern culture in general. You know, where it's kind of more it's becoming this material based society. Is it? Could we potentially break into what the the significance of that that book title is? So I was writing my book on addiction and, and had a different title. And, but somebody I knew said, you've got to call it in the realm of monkey ghosts. And, uh, and of course, I, I, I said, yes, I do. Because I was familiar with the concept. I just hadn't thought about it as a book title. But 
in the Buddhist cosmology, you know, there's these six realms that human beings travel through. These are really emotional, psychological states, uh, ways of being. And uh, one of them is the human realm, which is our ordinary, everyday selves. And there's the animal realm, which is our appetites and our lusts and our drives, our instinctual um, dynamics. And then there's the hell realm, which is rage and terror, fear and panic and all these difficult to endure emotions. And so among the other realms is the realm of Angiros, in which the creatures are depicted as ones with small, tiny mouths and very narrow necks so that the very little space for the food to go down and large empty bellies. So they've got these small mouths, narrow gullets and empty bellies. So they're always trying to feed themselves from the outside. It's an insatiable emptiness. And they're just haunting the world, trying to get fulfilled and filled. And that's the realm of addiction. And of course, I well recognize it in myself and a medical doctor, all the addicted clients I've ever worked with so that that hungry ghost image just seemed to fit so many of us, not necessarily every day or every part of every day, but certainly it's a space that we all visit quite often, I think. Yeah. yeah. And so some coming from, you know, someone like yourself, who's a well-respected doctor and best-selling author and all that, it's like, it would be easy to believe that someone like you wouldn't deal with any type of addiction or anything. You know, I think that there's a, a confusion between like specific drug addiction, laying in the street, shooting up heroin and someone that's addicted to shopping or addicted to, you know, power or addicted to sex or whatever it is, you know, is that, or, or just to the internet, you know, yeah. uh, um, if you, if, if people just notice in themselves when they're bored or feeling kind of empty yeah. and, and that difficulty, that reluctance, that even abhorrence of being just with yourself for one moment. Mm -hmm. So you have to just stuff yourself uh, full of something external. So you got to go and check out the latest stuff on Facebook or or, or, or anywhere on the internet, like anything at all yeah. to take you away from yourself. Underneath all that, that discomfort is an emptiness. And so it's a very common state and the substance addict is only one particular example. Yeah. So if you define addiction as any behavior that a person finds pleasure or temporary relief in and craves um, and temporarily find some soothing in, but then experiences negative consequences in the long term and continues despite the negative consequences. So any behavior, craving, relief, temporary pleasure, long-term negative consequence, inability to give it up, well, then you can see that addiction is a much broader field than simply that of drugs. You know, it, it includes any manner of human behaviors. Human behaviors that in themselves are even necessary, such as eating, can become addictive. Uh, such as uh, exercise can get addictive, sex can become addictive, anything can be addictive if we're not using it for its intended purpose, but instead to fill that emptiness, then it then becomes addictive. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I witness this myself on a daily basis. And as Stephen Pressfield uh, calls it resistance, you know, like the resistance of getting into your work is, is the reference that he's using with it, you know, writing the book or doing, you know, whatever the thing that you maybe prefer to be doing or would like to be doing. But 
then you end up eating instead, or then you end up masturbating instead, or then you end up fill in the blank instead. And I think it's like kind of standing at the edge of getting into ourselves and continue making excuses of, of why, you know, instead of jumping into us, we end up eating, you know, or fill in the blank. Yeah. 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 Well, and then you wonder why that resistance, you know, and, and uh, that resistance uh, to, to life, the way things are, just such a part of the personality. In fact, as some teachers point out, it's the basis of the personality, so that, that build our personalities out of resistance to how things are, which, again, goes back to my point about addiction, which is that um, it's not a disease that comes along for no reason. It's like what it is. It's an attempt to deal with distress and stress. In other words, when stuff happens to us that makes us suffer, uh, and if life makes us suffer, then we're going to resist life. And, and that resistance is rooted usually in very early childhood experience. Yeah. Infants are not resistant. They're very open. So the resistance comes along as some kind of a coping mechanism. And, 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 and the personality is very often organized around resistance. Yeah. Yeah, and there's a quote from, I, actually, this isn't a quote from Hansei. Paraphrasing Hansei, it's something along the lines of, of um, our ability to cope with our emotions is the most important tool in dealing with, with stress. And I think it's something that we don't, there's a book called Raising Cain. Have you heard of Raising Cain before? It's about yeah. boys and emotional intelligence and all that stuff. We don't really get educated on this <laughs> growing up. You know, in fact, it's almost the opposite. Well, of course, the biblical Cain was... Uh was the first person to kill and he killed his brother Abel yeah yeah and he was full of rage and jealousy that he couldn't handle so that you know that difficulty of handling emotions uh, of being able to have the like that's the hell realm the hell realm is these heavy emotions of rage and pain and jealousy yeah. now my contention is that people enter the hungry ghost realm in order to escape the hell realm. But where the hell realm comes from is childhood deprivation. Hmm. So that, and, and infants have no capacity to regulate their emotions. So emotional regulation, to be able to be with tough emotions, handle stress, is a developmental achievement. But it happens only if the early environment is nature, naturally supportive and soothing and protective. And if it isn't, we never develop the brain capacity to handle emotions and stress. And then addictions are one way. It's not the only way, but addictions are one way that then people turn to to regulate their stresses. So if you look at your own life and if you look at the question, have you had any um, addictive behaviors, you'll probably say yes. And if I asked you what would usually trigger those behaviors, you would probably say something stressful. Because perhaps in your early childhood, you didn't develop the capacity to regulate your own stresses. Because your parents couldn't give you that environment where that development could take place. So whether you're looking at the brain physiology of addiction or whether you're looking at the psychology of addiction, we're talking about childhood loss, childhood um, 
uh, suffering. Yeah. Yeah, I, I can tell how integrated or connected with, uh, you know, community or with myself or with, you know, whatever I am based off of how much I reach out for things like, you know, either comfort eating or maybe looking at my standings with this podcast or, you know, fill in the blank. There's all these different things. It's like there, I mean, it was, it's like one-to-one. I could create a, a graph chart of seeing like, okay, this is how well Aaron is doing. And it's based off of how many clicks I have on the thing. And it's just, and I know as I'm doing it, it's empty, but I don't really yeah. know how in those moments, it's really challenging to know like, well, what's, what's bigger than this, you know, right. It feels unattainable at this moment. So I'll jerk off you know, or, or whatever. I have the same dynamic. I have the same dynamic. And uh, the trick is not to try and look for that something bigger. Because if that was available to you at that moment, you'd have it. The trick is to be able to endure the discomfort of not having that something bigger. So the problem is not that something more wonderful is missing. The problem is that we have difficulty enduring the emptiness and, and, and the boredom or the sadness and and really that's the necessary step is you know the Tibetan book of living and dying has a wonderful teaching where he says whatever you do don't run away from your pain yeah and so it's not so much how to find that wonderful connection that then you won't be seeking your egoic image on the internet and the standing of your podcast, but how to handle the distress that you feel at that moment without trying to soothe it. Yeah. Yeah. This is very Yeah. I think that the issue sometimes is a lot of people in our culture and it's, and I think that, that, that perhaps the, the infrastructure of our society is almost based off of this. That's we get to a point that it's just, below the feeling of meltdown, you know, and if, if we, if everyone got on a regular basis to that point of meltdown, we'd live in a different culture because people are making serious changes, but we kind of are always in that, that buffer zone. And we kind of ride that, that space that it's like, it's again, it's just at the edge of ourselves, I think, you know, but people like drug addicts and such, they have real tangible, distinct, wow, my life is really messed up. I need to change. But then the rest of the world who's okay, we kind of live in this like, well, I'm just always kind of sort of freaking out, but, <laughs> but it's manageable. So we don't ever like take that step to, to change. Well, look, when I worked with hardcore drug addicts, I always thought the only difference between them and I, and in fact, it's in my book, this quote, a colleague of mine once said to me that the only difference between us and them is that we have more, in, more tricks in our toolkit than they do. Yeah. We have, we have more ways we can fend off the discomfort than they do. Right. That's the, that's the difference. So what, what do you have any sense on like the, the source of the discomfort that a lot of people are feeling? And this isn't assuming that everyone is in pain or maybe it is, you know, but I don't think it needs to be completely pessimistic and say like, this is the only, but a lot of people, this is something they deal with on a regular basis. Do you have any sense on like where the source of this for people is or? Well, yes, it's, it's what I said, it's rooted in childhood loss. Um, it loops rooted in uh, trauma, rooted in uh, deprivation and 
people have sometimes difficulty understanding or seeing how deprived they actually were because they may feel they got all the physical support and their parents did their best, which is all often the case. Right. But the real point is, now if you look at the hardcore drug users, invariably they were abused as kids, they were traumatized as children in significant ways, by and large, I mean almost all of them. Uh, but the average person might not be able to identify you know, events like sexual or physical abuse or, or neglect or the death of a parent or a severe divorce or anything overtly traumatic, but it doesn't have to be that. It can just be that the parents are too stressed or too distracted or too um, troubled by their own stuff to be able to fully attend to the child emotionally the way the child needs it. That's enough to endure and to incur losses that later will show up as addictions. And in our, in our culture, this is not a personal issue um, because if you look at how, how human beings are meant to be parented, human beings are not meant to be parented the way we're parenting kids today uh, for 99.99999% of human existence, we were parented in in uh, communities, in, 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 in tribes, in groups, in, 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 uh, in a context where we had multiple nurturing adult interactions. Yeah. And, and not isolated parents. And, and not in situations where we didn't even see our parents most of the day. Kids are meant to be with the nurturing adults, a whole bunch of them, the whole day. That's how kids are supposed to develop. So in our culture, for no fault of any particular parent, the optimal parenting environment is 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 generally not available, and we suffer as a result. Yeah. So addiction is very much a, a disease of civilization. I wonder as well with with as far as like the development of children. It, it, I feel like there's there's a, a large discrepancy between the ages of the you know our our role models. You know, I, I think that a, a child's able to really respect if you're five you really respect a 12 year old you know but we kind of break everything down into like five year olds six year olds seven year olds eight year olds and then an old adult do you feel well, like there's any well look so that's one of my books it's, it's called hold on to your kids right parents need to matter more than peers and it points out that in our society um children because they no longer have the contact with adults but they're much more likely to be in constant contact with their age group, with their peer group. Now they become each other's models and mentors. So instead of children looking up to older mentoring figures as their models, now they look to each other. So now you've got immature human beings acting as each other's models and in constant contact with each other by means of the technology. Now it wasn't meant to be that way. Children are meant to be with nurturing adults. And so that the five-year-old that looks up to the 12-year-old in a traditional culture is okay because the 12-year-old himself is looking up to the adults. Right. Yeah. So that the, 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 inf the influence flows from mature adults to less mature children. So it's a vertical influence rather than a horizontal one. Right. And in our culture, the transmission of influence has become horizontal. But what do we expect, except a lot of insecurity and a lot of the bullying and a lot of dysfunction that we see amongst kids? Because kids cannot possibly feel safe being nurtured or mentored by people as immature as they are. Right. It leads to a lot of insecurity and a lot of immaturity. 
So what's showing up is the prolonged immaturity, immaturity of young people in our culture, where where the humor, for example, that, that passes off in some of the Hollywood movies, is literally the pee and poop uh, humor of four and five year olds, except it's aimed at thirty year olds. Now, what does that mean? It means not failure on the part of those 30 years old. It, it's a failure on the part of the culture to help people mature. Yeah. And in, and in traditional cultures, a 14, 15 year old would be quite a mature creature already. I'm just reading a book about pygmies in Africa. 14, 15 year olds in the pygmy culture, as long as it's uncorrupted by contact with you know, civilization. The 14, 50-year-olds are mature members of the tribe. Uh, our 14, 15-year-olds are, are functioning at the level of three and four-year-olds emotionally very often. Right. And we almost... And not, go on. It's not fault. It's just they don't have the context for healthy development. Yeah. We almost intentionally restrict development of children, I think. You know, we have this arbitrary 18 years old that now you can, you know, buy cigarettes and go to war. And then at 21, now you're allowed to drink alcohol. It's different in Canada, you know, but it's, it's interesting how we, we do, we stunt the growth of, of children. And then you go to, you know, other countries and you see these strong, I just got back from Africa. You know, I mean, you know, you see these 13, 14, 15 year old kids and it's like, you, wow. Like it's, and it's, it's just a product of, well, we've been building fires and cooking food and hunting fish and we have all this contact and we, it's like, okay. And then we look down on that from, from our angle. That's the, that's the ironic thing. <laughs> I mean, we, we think we're superior and, and, and uh, of course, the Western and Northern countries have the economic um, heft to actually to those countries, and very rapidly we're changing those societies for the worse. Very rapidly, under the impact of globalization, they're losing the um, the strengths that, as a culture, they have had. So it's difficult to combine traditional cultural values and strengths with a globalized economic model. The, the latter will destroy the former, and we're seeing that uh, internationally. Yeah. It's not a pretty picture what we're seeing. And, and, and then if you, if you look at countries like China, where that has happened in a rapid and ravenous fashion, you're seeing an increase in addictions and dysfunctions and mental health issues and so on very, very rapidly. Yeah. Yeah, the, um, I think that the, interesting part where it comes into kind of like, you know, this world here, working with clients and such is, is the correlation between what's happening in people's physical body and what's happening in their emotional reality. You know, we, and we start to look, it's like, oh, this, you call it forward head posture or medial rotation of the shoulders or hyperkyphosis or the, you know, the, the, like the puppy dog tail between the legs in humans, posterior tilt of the pelvis. You know, and it's like, we see all these same physical patterns of depression happening in adults, you know, and I was just, I was in England recently. I was looking at, I was, I went to parliament just for the hell of it. You know, I was watching the, the adults making these big decisions and they're all in these hunched over depressed positions. Yeah. And these are the people that are running the world. They're the most, you know, empowered people in the world. Well, I'm sure, I'm sure that, that if you looked at my body posture, um, 
especially when I'm not very conscious, not very aware, yeah. you you pick up some patterns that would tell you a whole lot about my history. I, I have no question, I have no doubt that somebody with your expertise and, and, and the capacity to see in body posture and body stance and body contractions, yeah. you know, the impact of life experiences, you pick up quite a lot. As it, when it comes to political leaders, um, um, very often these people are very restricted, very constricted, very traumatized people. I mean, if you look at somebody like Donald Trump, yeah, he's a traumatized person. We, we can joke about his narcissism, his attention problem, ADHD, and so on. But really, what he is is a traumatized person, and that trauma shows up in his uh, voice, in the formulation of his words, in his worldview, which is a fearful one. Yeah. Uh, and he's either he's typically either into acquisition or defense. So he wants to make himself bigger and wealthier, or is defending himself and sees enemies everywhere. Typical traumatized child. And so is his opponent, by the way. Um, there was a very interesting story that emerged during the Democratic uh, Convention uh, when Hillary was being celebrated and lionized for, you know, for having attained the nomination. And there was a video biography narrated in reverential, respectful tones by Morgan Freeman, you know, and they tell the story of how uh, a Hillary four-year-old runs into her house because she's bullied or attacked by neighborhood kids, and the mother says, there's no room for cowards in this house, now get out there and figure out what you want to do about those kids. Now, this is presented as a good thing. So that if a four-year-old girl comes to you as your parent saying, I'm scared and other kids are attacking me, you're supposed to call them a coward and send them out there. In other words, not nurture them at all, not, not, not hold them, not support them. And this is presented as a good thing. Yeah. Now that's the person who's traumatized and is not even in touch with themselves. Yeah. So if you look at the persona of a Hillary Clinton, uh, that woodenness, that, that, that distance from reality, what is it based on? It's based on the fact that reality was too painful for her, and she had to fashion this combative, insensitive persona in order to survive. So now you have these two traumatized people running to be president of the United States. And, and, and basically, it's beyond these individuals. It, it speaks to the nature of the system. That's, that is these kind of people that keep rising to Right. Uh, and and uh, both of them are relentlessly addicted to power. Yeah, yeah, and that's you know, something I, I you see with like if we don't get an understanding of how to work with our emotional selves and how to work that through as children, I think good luck figuring it out as an adult. You know, it's like not to say that you can't, but the walls get thicker. And this relates to structural patterns as well. If you get a new structural pattern, you rolled your ankle, whatever it is, you can usually obsess that out. But when it's something that's been ingrained for 40, 50 years, you know, it becomes more challenging. And then you have the other aspect of now you've have this assume this role of power and people are respecting you and congratulating you and perpetuating this. Absolutely. Well, just as you know, in my case, I mean, I. Uh so I was a successful doctor and, and, and uh, you know, already a best-selling author in my country. And, and uh, what I would get would be um, 
respect and economic reward for my workaholism. Right. No, nobody would say to me, listen, what are you actually doing? What is the impact on your family? What is the impact on your marriage? Yeah. What is the impact on you? No one said what you get is respect. So that uh, in our society, very often the dynamics that cause people to suffer are actually celebrated as long as they're the external markers of success. Yeah. And uh, very often in physical illness, you have people who are hard workers and successful and so on, and they even eat right and they exercise and then they get sick and, and and, and because they're successful, they don't realize how stressed they are. And, and they don't see the relationship between their stress and their physical illness or their, or their mental health condition. Right. So, uh, and, and so that, that success, that functionality, can actually hide a lot of suffering and a lot of dysfunction. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, you know, something that... I have been really curious about with myself is the usage of uh, psychoactives, you know, ayahuasca and, and you know, psychedelic mushrooms and things like that as a means of surrender. You know, sometimes I, I feel like, you know, I'm not promoting this or whatever. It's just it's something that I've explored. It's just That's always the biggest challenge is the willingness to surrender and the willingness to let go of this castle that you've created that I call Aaron Alexander and you call Gabor Mate, you know, and be okay with kind of letting that slip through your fingers a little bit and you know the, the practice I just haven't really found something as potent as those ceremonial experiences I don't do you have any kind of opinions on that well uh, I have in the last eight years very late in my career um, discovered the realm of, um, of uh, psychedelic plants as healing modalities I mean, I really knew nothing about them. Um, but for the last eight years, I've been working mostly with ayahuasca, uh, which is a Peruvian brew. Yeah. Tastes quite awful. When it <laughs> it's <like> molasses. <laughs> uh, no, I, I prefer molasses. <laughs> Bitter molasses, maybe. And uh, when I say work with it, I mean, I, I, I led retreats with it. And, and, and people come with trauma, with physical illness. And that opening of the mind and heart and soul that happens with the effects of the plant then allows me to guide people very deeply into themselves. Yeah. And um, that opening then allows them to explore these patterns in their lives, whether they're in the body, well, they always are in the body, uh, and or the mind. You can't separate the mind from the body, actually. No. And it allows for a kind of reprogramming so that they, they can let go of these old patterns. Now, it's not a simple matter of you drink this and you're gonna be okay. It's, it's, it's hard work. Right. But, but, but the ayahuasca experience, or in some other cases, other teaching plants, that experience allows that work to happen um, much more expeditiously yeah. than otherwise. So typically, after a week in, in one of the retreats I lead, 
people say um, that was like 15 years of psychotherapy yeah. in uh, seven days. And actually, it's more than 15 years of psychotherapy because a lot of conventional psychotherapy never gets that deep, even after 30 years, never mind 15 years. So, but that doesn't mean that it's over at the end of a week because that's really just the beginning. So that these plants and other substances that people under the proper guidance can find very helpful, the real challenge is then to integrate what you've learned and what you saw into your daily life. Yeah. And that's not an easy step. Yeah. So nobody should think that they can just do these substances and plants and then that's going to change their lives. They can be life-changing but it takes a lot of integration. Yeah. Yeah, the, the, the plant or the, you know, the teacher, the psychologist, whatever it is, ends up being the, the catalyst for disarm, disarmoring, I think. Yeah. You know, but then it's yeah. like, okay, great. The walls are down. <laughs> you know, like, what next? You know, that's not, you don't just press that, that. I mean, that's comparable to like the pharmaceutical industry where it's like, you know, press the button, take the pill, and you're good to go. It's like, no, no, that, that, it's just the catalyzation of the work. I wouldn't agree that it's the same, because the, um, see, if, if you're depressed, I mean, I've been supporting, working with a woman, for example, who had 17 suicide attempts in her life, deeply traumatized person. And she's been on every manner of drugs. Yeah. No, you know, Prozac and antipsychotics and, you know, tranquilizers and like everything else you can imagine. Now, these medications can suppress symptoms, but they never deal with the underlying issue. So if I'm, I've taken Prozac, so if I'm depressed and I, I take Prozac, which I won't anymore ever again, but I did at a certain point in my life and I actually found it helpful. But it didn't transform or change anything. All it does is it biologically uh, changed my brain chemistry such that I was better able to function. I'm not saying that's a bad thing in itself, but it's not transformative. The ayahuasca is not a drug that you take regularly. It's not that you, take, you go home and you take this to change the chemistry of being it's actually an opening as you say it's a, it's a destruction of the walls of the egoic self yeah. so that you can actually come closer to the real self so in the case of the ayahuasca it's the experience that matters not the chemical effect of the substance yeah. whereas with the western drugs it's the constant chemical uh, control of your brain biology it's a completely different experience yeah. No. Yeah. And again, I'm not, and I'm not even dismissing the value of Western medications. I've seen there's certain situations where they can be helpful, but they're never the answer. Yeah. They're never by themselves. They'll never get you where you need to be. Yeah, it's the the, the reason I, I relate it to that is I would say it's only like that if that's where you, where it stops. Which I think with something as potent as, as ayahuasca, it's really kind of impossible for it to just stop there. But if it's just you can, I think we can become dependent on taking the veil down, you know. And if we don't actually, you know, take notes and do the work after that. It yes. just becomes, it's like, well, it's usage of time, I guess. <laughs> you know, it's like. <laughs> and, and I've seen ayahuasca make a difference in depression and anxiety, post traumatic stress disorders. I've seen it make a difference in uh, 
in conditions that are physically debilitating, like scleroderma, autoimmune diseases, multiple sclerosis. Yeah. There are studies on the treatment of ALS with ayahuasca. And it's not because the substance somehow right. corrects something in the body. The substance opens up the possibility of a different relationship with yourself and your body, yeah. which is that impaired relationship with yourself and your body is the essence of the original trauma. So what what this work can do is it can help you deal with the traumatic, traumatic effects of experience. And what Western medicine doesn't sufficiently understand or doesn't understand at all, really, is that all, almost all, almost all, not all, but almost all physical illness and mental illness is actually a manifestation of life trauma. So trying to just cure the illness without dealing with the underlying issues is, in, is incomplete. Yeah. Because with this with these plant medicines, whatever else you do with these plant medicines in the right context, you can actually reverse the impact of trauma. Yeah, and that's this is something that I end up talking with with most most all my clients, and it's it's an interesting it's an interesting thing because I think that with that we almost prefer to look at what happens to us, this disease, this cancer, this thing as being something that came from the periphery and attacked, you know, it's, it's like terrain theory versus germ theory, you know, it's like, it's like, maybe it has, maybe it has something to do with something we've been cultivating for a long time, just subconsciously. We don't even see it happening, but to, to really accept that, I'm not saying that has to be the answer, but to accept that then it's okay. I'm, I'm kind of taking responsibility for this. And then that's that's kind of a scary proposition, I think. Yeah, sure. So my book, when the body says no, literally, that's my whole argument: is that the people who get physically ill with scleroderma, rheumatoid arthritis, colitis, Crohn's disease, um, multiple sclerosis, psoriasis, chronic asthma, chronic fatigue, fibromyalgia, endometriosis. I don't care what. Yeah, it's their body saying no when they don't know how how to. And uh, and um, what they don't know how to say no to is the stresses that their life has imposed on them since childhood. So this is so you're not blaming the patient for getting sick, but you are saying that there's something about the way you lived your life that you haven't consciously realized that is actually making your system more susceptible to disease. And you can reverse that. So in that sense. You mustn't take blame, but you can take responsibility. And that responsibility involves then looking at, well, what are these patterns? How have I stressed myself? And in what childhood experience are my coping patterns rooted? And how can I start now living in a way that's no longer conditioned by my childhood, but is freshly chosen in a way that I can be responsible for, that I can actually be consciously aware of? So how can I live consciously, in other words, instead of unconsciously? And so that when the disease comes along, we have to deal with it the best way we can. But one of the ways is absolutely necessary is to recognize that the disease always contains a message. Yeah. And, and, and if we hear that message, we can do so much better. And, you know, from that point of view, um, and I used to work in palliative care, looking after terminally ill people, and I've heard from so many people at whatever stage of illness, even in terminal phases, people have said to me, I'm so grateful for this disease because it taught me something that's so precious. And 
I don't recommend disease as a way of learning, and I certainly don't recommend fatal illness as a way of learning, but I'm saying even in those states, people have at times recognized that dealing with the disease process has taught them something that is sometimes worth more than physical health itself. Again, I'm not trying to romanticize it or to recommend it, I'm just reporting what I've been told by many people. Yeah. Yeah, I know that you don't prefer the the term drug addict and prefer just just people, you know. But something that I something well, actually, go on. actually, if I could write a law, yeah, <laughs> if I was the 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 language czar, okay, if I could if I could dictate uh, use of language, then I would forbid the use of the word addict. Yeah, and I would say every time you wanted to say addict, you'd have to say. Not this addict, but this human being yeah. who suffers so much in life right. that, ha- that, that has to turn to substances or other behaviors in order to soothe their pain. Yeah. If every time a politician or a judge or a policeman or a physician or anybody wanted to use the word addict, but instead they'd have to say, a human being who's suffering and is suffering by means of this behavior, that would change the whole conversation, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's, it's, it's disempowering. There, there, you know, I was just reading in the New York Times this morning. Uh, New York Times or New Yorker? Um, no, yeah, somebody who sold three grams of of, of, of heroin to uh, to support their own drug addict. Right. To an undercover policeman, they're sent to jail for 35 years. Yeah, they should have been sent to a rehab facility. Yeah, not to a jail. You know, and 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 it's because we don't understand that addicted people are just traumatized human beings who are who, who suffered a lot. Yeah, and we see them as the enemy, and we see them as people could be ostracized and, and punished. Um, that's why I would like to get rid of the word addict. Yeah. By the way, if, if, if anybody understood the meaning of addiction, that would be okay, because the word addict, addict comes from a, a Latin word for slavery. Hmm. So how to become people's slaves? Yeah. Nobody becomes slaves by choice, yeah. nobody. Yeah, I had the the beautiful experience of getting put in a max security jail thing for a week <laughs> because I was in a place that was like there was a f- friends of mine in California. They were, they were growing some weed. No big deal. It was legal what they were doing on the property. There was like 7000 plants. They had like 300 acres or something like that. Mexican mafia cartel were growing on there. They thought that the house that my buddy owned was was affiliated with it. Everybody that was there, I was there for like two. I was actually headed to Squamish. I was headed to Vancouver. And so I was I was sleeping out in my hammock out front and all of a sudden place got raided, helicopters like swine. It was crazy. But the, the the there was this amazing insight into being put into that experience and the degree of, of disempowerment 
that I felt with that. And then being put, it's kind of like being in, you know, in that situation, it's a bunch of like, it was mostly drug addicts that were there, you know, and it's, they're all just there together. And, you know, taxpayers are just paying to put these people together and just be there. And you just watch TV and then you go out and you play. It's like, it was, it was like adult daycare, like just play camp. It, that, there was no development. There was no rehab. There was no any, it was, it was just, okay, let's just store these people, enslave them and then put them back out. And then once you go back in the system, it's, it's practically impossible to not get put back in. You know, it's inherently broken. Well, we call it the correctional system, but it doesn't correct anything. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, were you going to say something? It's okay if not. No, uh, yeah. no, it's only that, it's only that, uh, this, um, disdain and um, punitive vindictiveness towards the addict is really a rejection of a part of ourselves that we don't like. Yeah. We're, we're rejecting our self-hatred onto the, onto the identified addicts. And we, and we call that justice. Right. Yeah, it's like, it's almost you raise yourself up by putting other people down as long as there's addicts in the world as long as there's thieves as long as there's people below you that kind of keeps you in this pedestal place i think it's kind of important to, <laughs> to our ego <laughs> brings us back to donald trump i mean when you read the history of his business dealings he's stolen a lot yeah he's stolen millions upon millions from people that couldn't afford it from other business associates and so on. We don't call it stealing. We call it sharp business practices, but it's the same thing. Yeah. Whereas if somebody stoles a, steals a $15 price item from a store, they go to jail. The big thieves get to run the world. Yeah. And then, you know, but, but, but if we can feel superior to the to the guy who's in jail because he stole some small item well that makes us feel better we don't compare ourselves we don't even think to compare ourselves to these big guys right. we just assume that they're okay they can do whatever they want and our rage and our disdain is aimed at the people below us right. it's a very convenient psychological self-enhancement yeah. And we don't do it deliberately, but we do it. Yeah, you got to we got we're about running out of time. The one thing I wanted to mention that I, I pulled out of the, the when the body says no book was um, there was a, a study that is some it was like a four year grad student and they were uh, they were doing I believe it was a colonoscopy it's like a you know it's like they were it was a mock colonoscopy or, or it was a real colonoscopy but it was and what they what they ended up telling them as the cameras were in there there's was that oh we're finding cancer cells in here yeah. and what they see is they see contraction of the colon and you know it's linking this to like stress and constipation you know but then the way that I read into that is stress and contraction of your physical self on every level, including visceral self. Absolutely. And based on what you believe about the world and yourself. Right. So, so that, that physical contraction that you will see a lot in your work, uh, behind that physical contraction is a certain belief that the person holds about themselves in the world. And mostly they believe that they're under threat. 
because under threat we tense up and we contract. Yeah. Now, a sense of threat that causes a contraction um, goes back to childhood. And as a matter of fact, you know, as one of my great teachers says, the personality itself is an entity of contraction and tension. So that then our whole bodies and our functioning is organized around tension and contraction. Hmm. So we talk about people being uptight. Well, of course they are. They're tight. Yeah. As a response to threat, the threat may no longer be a real one in their actual lives, but they're imbued with that sense of threat, and therefore they carry the contraction. Yeah. And that, of course, then, in the various viscera and body organs and muscles, it causes disease. Yeah. And that's, I think, you know, from, from the approach that I, I take is... is uh, from a physical approach with the awareness of how that's going to affect the emotional, yeah. mental, all the other levels. Uh, is there for people that it's like, okay, this contractions here, I recognize it. Is there any kind of like, where do you go from there with people when you're working with, with people? Well, where you go with them will be different where I go with them. I'm not trained the way you're trained. Uh, to look at body. No, I, like I notice it. I comment on it and I get people to be aware of it. Yeah. But what I work with it is I get them to identify the underlying beliefs, what they're believing at that moment. I get them to understand and to experience themselves in the moment and to look at the sources of that and to develop an awareness of it. So once you become aware of it, it's no longer automatic. Now you can actually do something about it. Right. Instead, but, but, I mean, the patterns that you and I will both see when we first see people, they're completely unconscious. Yeah. So for me, it's that awareness that matters. Yeah. Awesome. Um, thank you so much. <laughs> it was wonderful to get to talk with you. Um, how do people find more about your work? I would highly recommend everything that I've seen that you do. I just, it's, it's influenced my work tremendously. So thanks. Well, thank well, so first of all, my website is www.drgabormate.com, G-A-B-O-R-M-A-T-E. Um, my books are listed there. Chapters are available for people to read for free. Uh, my speaking events uh, are listed there. And uh, a lot of videos. Uh, and Or people can just look me up on YouTube, just put in my name on YouTube. Lots of my lectures and talks have been videoed and posted, never by myself, but they, 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 they seem to show up increasingly on YouTube and a lot of people seem to enjoy them and get benefit from them so uh, no, co no cost to any of that people can just check out the work yeah. on YouTube or at my website Yeah, cool. and of course there are my four books that people can find out about yeah um, great if you yeah so you're coming out to, to Oregon in you say a couple of weeks yes I'll be speaking in Salem and Portland I don't I think there may be one public talk I uh, forget where, whether Salem or Portland. Yeah. The others are more for specific uh, training for specific institutions, so then they're, they're not necessarily open to the public. Okay. But I think there's one public talk that I'm giving cool. um, in the middle of, I think, the 14th or the 15th, either in Salem or in Portland. And people should be able to find that information at my speaking event site on my website. Or if you live in one of those places, I'm sure there's 
information about it. Great. Yeah. I, um, so that'll be September 14th or 15th, um, and in 2016, Oregon. So I'll try to release this episode maybe next week and, uh, it'd be great to get people out there. Um, yeah, so I'd love to check that out. And if you make it out my way, like I said, be happy to, happy to work with you guys. If you're into it, it'd be awesome. Thank you. What a nice invitation. Thanks a lot. Oh man. I will uh, let you know when I put this out and yeah, hopefully get to see you soon. It was great getting to chat with you, man. It's, I've been, I've been looking forward to it. So thanks. Aaron. Great to meet you. All right. Take care. I'll see you soon. Align podcast. Thank you so much for tuning into the podcast. I greatly appreciate your comments and your shares in iTunes. They determine the ranking and the visibility of the show and they make me smile. So I look forward to reading those guys. Be sure to check out the website, aligntherapy.com. That's A-L-I-G-N therapy.com. On there, you can find my blog. You can find this podcast, more information about the topics and the, and the uh, guests that we've had on the show. You can find hundreds of absolutely free instructional videos on self-care, functional movement, how to get strong, how to get fast, how to get exactly what you want out of your body as well. Be sure to check out the self-care kit where it is as small enough to fit underneath the seat in your car. And it's like a physical therapist, a massage therapist, all wrapped up into one package. I know you guys are going to love the website. I know you guys are going to get a lot of value out of it. And I look forward to hearing your comments. All right. Bye. Thank you for listening and remember to join the movement by subscribing to the podcast. If the information has been helpful, please share and leave your comments in iTunes. Aaron personally reads each one and it makes all the work worthwhile. Together, we will make a difference and continue to bring more powerful and inspiring messages to the world. Align Podcast.